Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, my guest is one that has a full circle story. That is Joe Sawyer. Joe is the CMO of a company called Miracle. Miracle is leading in the fast growing space of marketplaces. Now the interesting place that this circle started is that Joe was an analyst at companies like Forrester and Accenture to start his career. In fact, he was covering the area of e-commerce, an area that he's CMO for today. So we talk a lot today first about having a passion for the area that you come from, but even more so how he's been able to bring some of his understanding of how to leverage analysts and balance that against internal thought leadership. Now, Joe provides equally the playbook for how to leverage analyst relations, but also how to tap different members of your organization, not just marketing, to go and create those high value thought leadership pieces that will bring someone in at the top of the funnel and just as importantly, move them along when they're engaging with salespeople. This is a great episode with concrete examples of how you can go and create great thought leadership to stand out from your competition. Here's my chat with Joe. Joe, I'm really excited to have you on here. Your career is a kind of full cycle one. I I was looking at where you started, which was an analyst covering e-commerce space. And you're you're the CMO of a company very much in the e-commerce space, but that's not overnight. How do you feel full cycle now, or do you feel like it's still somewhere in the middle of that circle? Yeah, and it's it's absolutely been a full circle. I mean, I went from being one of the first industry analysts covering e-commerce uh, to, you know, now at this point in my career with Miracle, you know, leading marketing in an organization that's kind of, that has pioneered the next chapter of e-commerce. All the things that were meant to happen, but didn't necessarily happen the way the world hoped uh, during the internet economy are being reevaluated and kind of going to the next level now. So that's, we'll talk about the journey I know to get there, but that's the, uh, <laughs> it's been a, it's been a fun full cycle process. So I don't want to say starting your career, but in terms of where your LinkedIn profile highlights the beginning in this journey is being an analyst. Back then, did you envision that path of getting into an actual marketing organization and being in the seat you're in today? No, to be honest, uh, you know, I I spent a a long and enjoyable first chapter as an industry analyst, uh, first at Forrester Research and then at Accenture. At that point, I knew I enjoyed the analyst gig. It's not every job where like the Wall Street Journal calls you up to ask you what you think about something. Um, and I'll talk a bit more about what, how that marked me, but at the time I was very much present being an analyst, knowing that eventually I probably wanted to get in the game and be on the other side of the desk and be accountable for bringing one of those innovations to market. I would say I don't have a traditional CMO background because when you grow up as an analyst, you go through this period of your career where you have hundreds of vendors coming across your desk. Everyone's got a vision. Everyone's got an acronym. Everyone's got a category, but you're accountable for going back to fortune 500 clients and saying, this is what's real. These are the vendors who are positioned to win and you have to do it in language that's meaningful to them. So, you know, when we, as we kind of progressed through the timeline, what that instilled in me was, I love the difficult challenges. I love the, you know, the disruptive, uh, the category creation, 
redefining something that existed is now boring and is now static. The, the second piece that may not be as evident is that I had the good fortune to be at Forrester during a, a super high growth uh, period in time. We grew from like 130 people to 700. We went public. I helped found our European uh, operations. And so as I started to come to the end of my analyst chapter and realized that I wanted to, to do and to be accountable, the, the two pieces I've retained as a CMO are that, you know, focus on telling the, the difficult stories for the high, high, uh, you know, swing for the fences kind of bets and the, the love of high growth. So I, I love the opportunities that were made available to you in that high growth and that, it, it, that international experience as well. I'm curious, though, the more recent CMO gigs, because, you know, the first one, we kind of sometimes take what's in front of us. But now that you've been able to be pitched multiple times, what are you listening for when the CEO calls you and says, here's an opportunity? What got you to bite at Miracle as an example? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, Miracle is a great example of that. Uh, American Well was too. When a founder or founders have a vision, when they can see major trends that are happening in the world around us and they can identify something that is fundamentally and massively broken with a process, with healthcare, with retail, with a segment that is critical to, you know, to our daily lives. You know, they, they have a vision for how things are changing. They see why the current path is not going to get us there. And they've come up with a, a powerful solution for, you know, for taking the world to the next, uh, to the next level. So like in the case of a miracle, it was this understanding. And, and when you mentioned full circle, I mean, customers have been on this anything, anytime, anywhere journey for two decades now. They were when I was an analyst at Forrester. It's never been fully actualized. And that's very much the, the journey around which, you know, Adrian and Philippe, the miracle founders, realized the inevitable journey that was going to break e-commerce and create the need for this other model, this marketplace model. And um, it was when I heard that initial story, of course, then backed up by because you one gets one scars along the way, right? Product excellence, happy customers, product market fit, you know, that you begin to have not just the incredible vision, but the actual tangible pieces that, that can make you be an effective marketer. So not to knock e-commerce in any way, because there's so much opportunity, but it's easy for some people listening to this to maybe say, you know what, I, I feel like there's such obvious winners in e-commerce, you know, whether you're a fan of a Shopify model or something in the Adobe suite, wherever that might lie. But as you said, there is, you know, an opportunity for that next generation. I'm curious with that category creation passion that you have that you alluded to coming perhaps from being pitched of all this opportunity. What about that allowed you to assess out whether this was actually a legitimate pivot within e-commerce? I think the, the, the value proposition stands on its own, but on a very personal level for me, you know, I, I was there in the days of the, the dot-com boom. Uh, I remember the idealism of the internet economy the sense that it was going to be this great leveling of the playing field, that it was going to spur local commerce, create jobs, uh, make consumers super happy. It was going to do all these things. And it it did many of those things, but many of the promises didn't pan out. The democratization didn't really pan out. We ended up with dominant giants. Uh, you know, it created opportunities in some areas, but, but removed them in others. And so it was, um, in the case of Miracle, in the case of marketplaces, that the sense that in order to, to continue to grow and to, we had an opportunity to kind of revisit that because brands had a means of fighting back, meaning, you know, 
most brands, most companies don't want to be Amazon, but they admire, you know, the the breadth of selection. They also admire the ability to employ other technologies so that it remain, you know, the promise of making it a highly personalized experience. So it was basically how could the sins of the internet economy be addressed by the marketplace economy and enable, you know, the brands and the companies we know and love to fight back. Interesting. So I'm curious as as a CMO today, how much does the intrigue for analysts weigh in terms of how you lead your team and where you bake it in given the experience you have there, the passion, but also yep. the adjustments today of how people get information. I mean, not everyone's going to a forester first. They may go to a peer review site before an analyst. How is that way in terms of how you structure your marketing team? Sure. Um, to your first question, I think that CMOs in general or mark tech marketers in general still fundamentally misunderstand analysts and what kind of moves them and drives them and how they like to work uh, with vendors. Analysts like to engage around what's the big change in the world uh, that you see? Why do you exist? How are you addressing that in a way that solves needs for customers? The more you can load in those customer experiences and validate through their mouths rather than through your own, the better off you are. You know, there are misconceptions that come from a sort of a transactional approach to analysts of like, you know, why haven't they written about me yet? Where's the magic quadrant for my three-letter acronym category that I've created? <laughs> they don't, they don't, you have to prove to them that the change in the world is so big that it deserves that. It's not about the right slides. It's not about, you can't uh, shortcut that messaging. The other thing is analysts are actually a great sounding board. They can help you uh, if you don't take them in from a transactional point of view, but from a partnership point of view. They can help you shape that story. The right answer in many cases is not to create a category. It is to influence the definition of an existing category. To your, the first part of your question, I think that's that's a growth area for a lot of uh, tech companies in the way they market. Um, but you're right. You know, back in the e-commerce days, the part of the reason why it was so much fun to work at Forrester is because there were there were very few entities, and they were primary, primarily analysts who were able to keep up with the pace of change. But now that's democratized too. So analysts have their niche. But there are review sites and the assembly of content is done by the prospect, right? So there are, you know, you have to, in any given area, understand the atomization of information and then the patterns by which your buyer is going to assemble that information. So on a tactical, applying that to a tactical perspective, and before we take a break here, I'm curious how you think about where that relationship with an analyst exists. Is this the role of a CMO? You know, is the CMO the one who should be leading all these conversations? Or is this something with a team, I believe, around 40 people at Miracle? Who are you tapping to say you're going to own our analyst relationship, the feedback loop that exists there? I believe it evolves as the company scales and matures. You know, at a at a very earlier stage startup, one more product market fit is maybe not established yet. It should be the founders. It should be the CEOs because... That's the level at which the analyst is going to, you're not going to pop up on a new wave or a magic quadrant generally at that size. So it's around alignment on the vision, feedback on the vision. When you grow into a scale-up stage, I believe the CMO is the orchestra conductor. So, you know, at this point we have our, our CEOs and founders are the appropriate people to articulate our vision in some uh, contexts. In other contexts, I can do it. In other contexts, it's the product marketing team going into detail or my product uh, colleagues and peers. So the CMO is kind of chief orchestrator, figuring out what's the goal, what's our long-term agenda with this analyst, and then 
you know, what are the, what are the briefings? What are the inquiries along the way? And then I'm going to bring the right team to the table to, to get to the right outcome. Really interesting. I mean, we are very carefully jumping into your go-to-market strategy, but we're going to take a break here on the market journey and we will be back to talk about that buyer's journey that's being mapped. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. Joe raised a really important question, which is who should own that analyst relationship in your organization? And as he outlined, there's no right answer. There's no one answer. We someone have to look at what stage you are in your company's maturation. Now, when you think about it, it makes sense for that CEO right out of the gate as you're building that vision and you're trying to get innovators on to be the one advocating on your behalf. And as you scale, as we bring more people into the organization, as he said, we can pass that baton where the CMO becomes that orchestrator. Now, interestingly at Uberflip, I continue to have a deep relationship with our analysts. As chief evangelist there, I'm in tune with our customers. I'm in tune with our product marketing team. I'm trying to help build a category. And I think that's a simple way to think about it. Who is responsible for building that category? for putting a stake in the ground to say, this is where we live, this is where we want to exist. That might be your ultimate AR owner. Joe, I want to continue this thread on the role of analysts, and I want to cross over though to an area that I care a lot about, which is content. Now, there's always this debate in terms of where can we get the best thought leadership? And one option is build a great content team, which I'm sure you have in your team of 40. And then the other approach is I can go and buy a very expensive report from an analyst firm. And you know, for those, as you said, who are maybe even at the earlier stage of their journey in marketing, sometimes you look at these two costs and you're like, I can't believe that I'm going to spend almost the, the body count of one person on this report. How do you weigh which is the better path to go in terms of creating your own content or outsourcing? Uh, the way I think about it is there are two, two dimensions you have to take a look at. One is understanding the buyer's journey and, um, What's it, what's it going to take to get someone in the funnel and what does it take to move them along? So, you know, for example, if what you sell is a very enterprise purchase, a very research-driven purchase, broad buying committee, then you need to think about what's the right... Generally, you're going to need a really powerful series of thought leadership assets up front uh, to provide value and engage them. You know, then on the other hand, a question that I think a lot of vendors don't ask themselves as seriously as they should is, what do we have internally that we can externalize? So I would... I would put out there the the number one imperative for successful thought leadership is to add value and that what you put out in market 
you know, we're not, we're not analyst firms. Uh, we're not nonprofits. This is not an altruistic thing, but you should strive to create content that is independently valuable because as your buyers begin to uh, kick the tires, research the market a little bit, you will, you will have authoritative content placed ubiquitously that they are going to easily find. As you kind of build that journey, whether it's something you think you can convert on one, like all singing, all dancing asset, or you need several of them, you can map those assets to the, the, the decision points and the convincing points that they need along the way. I can talk a little bit more specifically or give an example if that's helpful. But, uh, you know, on the other side, companies have a lot of that value inside. They're not used to, for example, empowering their, their customer success teams or their other, you know, their product teams to necessarily um, advise the market. But we sh you need to take the, the biggest advantage possible of the, the skills and the knowledge that reside within the organization. So I love how you outlined essentially this idea that we all hear about right content, right person, right time, right place. And a question tied to that for me is how do you make that determination whether all this great internal knowledge should be surfaced up front versus an analyst paper? And I'm sure you've been to many websites where some people actually have that, you know, magic quadrant or wave report on the homepage creating some degree of trust, that's your first download, that's your first action, versus others who are trying to lead with you know what their product could add from a value perspective. Is there a belief you have or is there criteria you have to determine when it is right to surface that analyst report? I mean, analyst reports, when they happen, and assuming that you are positive, the one is positively uh, shown in those reports are gold, and uh, and they are they always end up ranking as the largest demand generators, the you know the biggest downloads, the the most powerful assets that reps can use in a sales cycle, whether they are uh, trying to differentiate within a competitive deal or simply educate uh, a buying committee. But we don't control them. I mean, we do control them, but it's a slow burn control that's part of a you know months to years long uh, effort that any CMO should have around engaging the analyst community. So. Yes, you should use them when you have them, but a content strategy needs to assume that you will not have them or needs to needs to exist independent of being able to have them. So what where do you go when you can't have them? Let's let's hit on that a little bit because, you know, and you touched a little on some of the people who can influence that, that it can come from the product team, that it can come from the customer success team who have that voice of customer at bay. But what are some of the most impactful examples of content you've created internally? Sure. I'll give you a couple of examples. One, I'll take a, a few steps back in my career journey when I led marketing at American Well, which was the company that invented the notion of telehealth, which, you know, to that kind of circular question is take online retail, marry it with healthcare. A lot of people thought it was a terrible idea. Of course, it's since changed our lives. But, but back in the, you know, in the day when it was a new category, the content decision that we had to make, or one of the decisions we made is that in order to make it relevant and surface internal expertise, we needed to actually go through every single CPT code that a, a provider could, uh, could diagnose during a, a visit and call out on an individual level, which ones would be appropriate for online care. So we, we heavily engaged the medical community, which was both within the organization and outside of it in the form of review committees to put out, you know, position papers, clinical guidelines that actually brought this kind of abstract idea to life. Once we did that, by taking this expertise, we were able to, you can work with a prospect to more specifically help them understand what it means for them, whether it's 
medical cost savings, customer satisfaction. But that was that was one example of taking internal expertise and uh, creating high-powered content for the buyer's journey. I love that example because I'm sure a lot of these medical professionals were scared to make that jump as to where do I even start here? What can I do? What can I not do? And you're you're filling that knowledge gap. Absolutely. We could then point out specifically to them that in these kinds, and it, you know, we leveraged uh, trusted third-party resources, right? But in these kinds of encounters with these patients, when they present with these symptoms and maybe they have these issues, that's when you should feel comfortable and it is appropriate to, you know, to have a telehealth visit as a follow-on or have a telehealth visit as a first visit. You know, quick example from the world of miracles. We, if you think about, you know, our business has grown and evolved quite a bit beyond marketplace. But if you think of that core, that core marketplace business, there are three constituencies who matter. They're the operators, you know, the brands and the companies that are going to launch marketplace or dropship businesses. There are the the customers uh, who who buy from them, and there are the sellers who actually bring the assortment. And you know, early on, I realized that it was important to be able to put. You know, we collectively realized it was important to be able to put useful, valuable thought leadership out there about each of those constituencies to, again, as I said earlier, not only provide value and insight, but to be everywhere. Like so that if you're from one of those groups and you're trying to figure out how you how you fit into uh, to this marketplace world, you're going to find this content and those insights. So to be specific on the operator side, uh, we created a, a piece of content called the Enterprise Marketplace Index, which took the uh, aggregated data from 60 operational mature online marketplaces and, you know, aggregated it, sliced it, diced it, analyzed it, put an analyst caliber report out that's become a primary uh, early, you know, early asset for our prospects. On the seller side, we had a, a, sem- a set of about 50,000 uh, who, again, we uh, sliced, diced and externalized data about their experiences and, you know, what others should do and what lessons they could take away. And on the consumer side, we conducted a survey we took 10,000 consumers in 10 priority geographic markets, and we asked them about their buying behaviors and how they viewed marketplace purchases versus other purchases. What were their drivers? What were their preferences? Um, in each of these assets that resulted, not only became a, a valued piece of content, but they came, became the centerpiece of a multi-channel marketing campaign. And they are still, you know, they are still uh, heavily used within, within and outside of the organization today. What's really interesting about all three of those reports to me is that they required an approach of research by your own team on behalf of that party. Now, I'm curious, again, we could go out to an analyst firm or a research firm to prepare some of these, but how have you structured, again, your team and who owns that element of research that's conducted within the organization? Is this a product marketing role? Is this a content member who's taking this on? How do you assign that? It's varied based on the job the asset was meant to do and where the data or the expertise lies. So on the enterprise marketplace index, you know, that was, and in, and in all cases, it was highly cross-functional. So, you know, those, those assets are, credit them to all of Miracle. Marketing maybe you know, was the midwife or the facilitator, but uh, <laughs> but in the case to answer your question more directly, in the case of the enterprise marketplace index, customer marketing was the quarterback on that because because it was so tied to to our knowledge and our relationships with these uh, with these live marketplaces. In the case of the consumer uh, the consumer survey, the consumer marketplace index, it was corporate marketing because this was largely sort of a born from a, a you know running a survey PR kind of place. So it, it's it's very based on the job to be done but they're all very cross-functional. Marketing cannot do it alone. 
Interesting. I, I mean, I, I find it fascinating how you bring this inside. You bring obviously your experience from the analyst side and you're almost turning the entire organization to be more in tune with what's happening in the market, what's happening with customers, which sounds no different than why we go to analysts and get their perspective in the first place. Yes. But to be clear, of course, you know, since we're not in the analyst business, we put that out there, but it's highly, uh, you know, sliced, diced, pushed across every demand gen channel imaginable, measured, you know, the, the, those deliverables have evolved from year to year to become more optimized for demand gen. So it's, when I was an analyst, I did research for research's purpose. Of course, now it's research uh, to add value, but then also to engage, uh, engage buyers. Really well put. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, we got to put the right segments of that research in front of the right buyer at the right time in the right place, as we said. Joe, we're going to keep you around for one more set of questions here on The Marketer's Journey. That was a fun little debate or discussion, depending on how you think about it. Should we go outside to analysts to create these big reports, or do we go internally in surface research? But I think one of the points that really sticks with me is regardless of which path you choose, having the report is just the beginning. The way we slice and dice that and use it, as Joe said, at various stages of the buyer journey is perhaps even more important. Today, our buyers are looking for content as they flow through your journey. And they're not looking always for a long 30-page document or research paper. They're looking for proof points. They're looking for different things that can get them to that next stage. And there are times where you can take that report, whether it was done by an analyst, whether it was done internally, and turn these into slides, turn them into customer stories, get feedback on them from your audience, and use those as a way to carry someone through from awareness to purchase. Joe, there's such a connection between your journey and the way you build a buyer journey. Now we're going to try and combine those all together. When you think of the skills needed to be a leader at the CMO level, what is it that you are looking for in terms of grooming members of your 40-person marketing team? Yeah, I think the the most important skill is is focus. So it's being able to understand the the company strategy, how that strategy cascades into targets, you know, we're marketing. So commercial targets are the ones that matter. And then understanding how, what you do and deliver on a daily basis aligns with those targets and thinking very much in that way. Like on our, on my regular global marketing team meetings, we'd always start with pipeline. We break it down. How are things going? What's above, what's below? Um, what are some things succeeding, not succeeding? That's the instincts that every marketer needs to build, build in today's, uh, in today's world. Really well put. I think the need for focus is always important in marketing with so much on our plate. It's impossible to tackle every assigned or requested ask within the organization. Let's come back to content. We talked a lot about content and the different ways to generate it, but what content is it that really resonates for you? What type of offer gets you to click these days? Uh, what gets me to click these days are best practices, our success stories, our real, real live, tangible, actually fairly unmoderated or anal you know, let's say lightly analyzed uh, pieces of content. So I, I want to get value. I want to learn. I want to. I like benchmarks. Uh, so if I feel like I'm going to get that for a piece of content, it gets my time. I love that. 
Now, we talked also a lot about personalizing. I love the example you gave of understanding that you got three different buyers, essentially, that you're trying to accommodate at Miracle. What does personalization look like when it comes to you? How do you know that that content, that offer has actually been personalized? What are those indicators? Within, uh, are you talking the Miracle context or as a consumer of content? Um, maybe as a consumer and how is that influencing, right. you know, the approach that you bring to the miracle offers? Yeah, I think, um, I know something has been well personalized. If the, the problem that it promises to solve for me is, is actually relevant, uh, which I think implies a lot of, a lot of research and sort of understanding of behaviors and of context. Uh, so it's that it goes back to that core job, you know, the core job of any piece of content and that's. That's the way we interrogate what we create or don't create at Miracle as well. There are a lot of, because it's so innovative, there are a lot of directions one can go in that are innovative, but that we need to make sure that we're staying focused on the problems as articulated by our buyers and giving them answers that are specific. I love that. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if we're not solving people's problems and they've got uh, other things to go and, and research for. Joe, my last question is maybe the toughest of the day, and that that comes down to balance. And how do you manage a balance? As you said, you've got a global marketing team. They're always on. You're probably always getting pinged, uh, almost 800 employees across Miracle as a whole. But how do you balance that with whatever's important to you at home? Um, it's hard. And actually, you know, I had I just had a, a second son, so I have a three and a half year old, two month old. So. The pinging is happening from all directions all day and all night long. Um, <laughs> and I think what I've, with the second kid, one, something that's really stood out is kind of throwing the word balance out the window. I think I've, I'm looking for something, something you approach on a day-to-day -day basis, right? It's uh, again, I think focus is important. I think being present is important. Um, but it's, it's trying to manage, it's trying to manage the intersection of different parts of your life. And that's something that, uh, you know, balance implies that it can be well resolved or like consistently managed in a camp. So I try to, I try to optim, try to optimize it for a certain goal for a certain day, you know, with an increment in mind, because otherwise it just gets totally overwhelming. I, I think that's a, a real answer that all of us can relate to, regardless if we're having our second kid or just trying to take on a second hobby. It's, it's important to be able to realize that we can't do all of these at the same time and finding a time to juggle them is is definitely part of of having the right journey in general joe i can't thank you enough for everything you've shared in terms of your career in terms of the buyer journey you're mapping and how you're handling you know that balance or lack thereof at home uh you know really helpful to anyone tuning in and if you've caught joe's episode as your first of the marketer's journey uh, i've been fortunate to chat with over 140 marketers to this date on this topic. Everyone's is a little bit unique. I hope you'll check some of those old episodes wherever you might get your podcasts, check them out, share them, and maybe one day you'll be on here sharing your own journey. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify at uberflip.com slash podcast or anywhere you listen to podcasts.